Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And in this episode, we interview Divya Siddharth about decentralizing AI, democratization, and how we can utilize the logic of social movements to influence our technology design. Divya Siddharth is a political economist and social technologist at the Microsoft Office of the CTO, working to understand, preserve, and extend democracy through technological process and innovation. She previously taught classes at Stanford University on building technology for good and creating a more secure world for political activism and engagement in civil society. Divya also spent several years in India as a research fellow, working with activists and politicians to think through democratized alternatives to existing tech platforms. And finally, important context for this conversation, Divya is a visiting scholar at the Ostrom Workshop, which is one of the leading spaces thinking about the commons. And we'll just jump right into it. So we are so excited to share this interview with Divya with all of you. We are on the line today with Divya Siddharth. Divya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, absolutely. It's great to have you here. And today we are talking a lot about democratizing AI, politics and AI, social movements in AI. And let's just start with democratization. We've heard this buzzword quite a bit and we're gonna ask you to clear it up for us. So how would you define democratization of AI? Yeah, well, this is a great question. And I think one of my sort of pet peeves and also core driving forces, which is in this age of kind of big tech platforms, I think the world word democratization has come to mean increasing access to a system as being democratizing that system. And, you know, this can be a major issue because Increasing access to something like the internet is a great thing. Giving, you know, people who are unbanked access to banking is a great thing, but that's not democratizing the economy. Giving people access to the internet is not democratizing the internet, right? It may be a clear prerequisite to democratizing uh, something, but it's not the same. And I think instead thinking about democracy as a structure of power relations and as a way to provide, you know, meaningful voice and agency over decision-making rather than simply access is really crucial when we think about democratizing AI or democratizing technology development more as a whole. There's also, I think on the political side, a conception of democratization as being inherently tied to the democratic structure of a country or of a nation state, where you know, a democratic tech ecosystem is a tech ecosystem that occurs within a democratic country, which is really not the case because intentionally designing for democratic logic is very different from having technology operate within a democratic state and letting the broader structures of a nation state define whether or not technology is democratic or is not democratic, lets go of the opportunity to, again, think about those power structures, the voice the technology provides, who has access to actually changing and directing it rather than access to just using it. Um, and so with all that, I think a positive version of what democratization looks like is, um, you know, producing economically, structurally, technologically, uh, democratic outcomes intentionally being designed with democratic logic, including meaningful voice and participation, having clear governance structures that are themselves democratic, um, and clear accountability structures, and all of those pieces really fit into this broader concept of democratization. So there are, as we know, parts of the world or nation states that identify and function as democracies, as maybe representational democracies, et cetera. And then there are nation states that do not necessarily identify or their structure is not in, in democracy. So when we talk about democratizing AI as we kind of break down some of the nuance, is this, is this a term that can be global, I guess, or does it does there have to be a movement towards democracy in order for AI itself to be democratized? Yeah, I mean, I think both. Uh, obviously, democratization across non-technological spaces, institutions, workplaces, nation states, et cetera, are, are important um, for democratization in any other spaces. I also think tech can be an enabler of that 
or a disenabler of that. And it's really the affordances we build into the technology that make that choice. Um, and in terms of a global movement towards democracy, I think that that is a piece of what we'd like to enable with our technology development. Um, so I would almost flip that question to say, how can we enable that with the way we're thinking about technology, with the way we're really thinking about the future, I think, as a, as a political project and as a technological project, not just one or the other, and expanding our political and technological imagination to build systems that design for and foster democratic participation in many ways that aren't nation state focused and in some ways that are. A quick follow-up on that. Um, is democratization good? <laughs> like sometimes I feel like there's also critiques about uh, democratization, especially in terms of like centralization and just there's all these multi-syllabic words <laughs> going on here. Um, when we think of democratization, should we go towards, you know, this is a, a good, good value, <laughs> like we should be moving towards this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Nathan Schneider actually has this great article on decentralization, kind of asking the same question, which is so many systems right now are calling for decentralization in different ways, but what does that really mean? Um, and, and tying it to this idea of a floating signifier from Claude Levi Strauss to say, you can put anything onto this word, right? And I think democratization kind of functions similarly, and that can be useful. It's definitely good in building coalitions. It's good because there's something in democratization that's about experimentation and not about you know pointing towards a perfect end state but it also leaves a lot of space open in terms of calling all sorts of things democratization that perhaps aren't um and and that's kind of where we started i guess in this conversation and in terms of you know is this good or bad i would really say looking at the material outcomes is the only way we can figure out whether it's good or bad i think it's a value to build into technological systems yes i think it's a good value in that sense but it can't be good absent leading to the kinds of outcomes we want to see. And that's the only way to really determine whether, whether it's being implemented appropriately, whether it actually means anything at all when it's being applied to a system, right? I mean, it, it can be very much an empty word, I think. And what that word is imbued with practically is system specific. So democratizing something like social media might look very different from democratizing, you know, something like workplace coordination. Um, and we can't use the same concepts across both of those things, but we've seen successful democratizations across both of those. I mean, I think the cooperative movement is a, is a constant reminder of what democratization can look like in practice and cooperatives look so different regionally. I work with a lot of cooperatives in my time in India and even in the same town, you know, cooperatives can look incredibly different in their structures, but I would say there's a democratization angle there. And that's always been closely tied um, to other social movements. And then uh, in terms of social media and the internet, like perhaps democratization there first looks like public accountability through a public interest mandate, um, or it looks like data interoperability regulation. Now, is that the same as communities having full agency over social media? It's not, but it's a step in that direction and it could have the kinds of outcomes that we wanna see. So I think there is a real you know, deep expertise that's required to figure out what democratization means in various contexts. And we definitely don't want it to become the kind of word that can just be applied to technological systems, you know, without thinking about the material aspects. So without running the risk of accidentally trying to prescribe like one set of democratizing principles on all tech systems, I'm going to ask us to do something <laughs> tangent to that, um, just because I, for me, it helps to be a little bit specific about some of these processes. And so when you when you talk about using democratic logic, um, like the same kind of logic that's in governments, and then putting that logic into technological systems, what are some of those um, pieces of logic? What are some of the values and the processes and just the things that we are placing within these technological systems to actually democratize them? Yeah, I think, you know, absolutely agreed on concrete examples. And one of the great ecosystems that I've been thinking about and working with recently is the broader digital democracy of Taiwan, which I think does have um, a lot to offer in terms of providing um, just that concrete understanding. And I'll say, you know, one piece is the design and the goals of the technology. So are these designed for democratic ends? I, I would say the first piece here is access, which is, you know, things like universal broadband, things like digital competence education that they have um, that are constantly expanding the range of citizens that can functionally access platforms and participate in digital democracy. 
Um, and bridging the digital divide too, right? By holding offline spaces that feed into online processes. So access, I think is the first piece in design. But secondly, I think this means inclusive design and useful participation towards an end. So rather than optimizing for engagement or encouraging you know, comments without a practical outlet as we see in other technical or even civic tech systems, this legislation process that uses technologies that are you know, underpinned by consensus algorithms, diversity scoring, right? Rewarding um, agreement across lines of difference. And so having this participation towards an end and some accountability structure that says people have voice over clear decisions that then have material consequences that people are uh, accountable to, whether that's the government or the private sector in terms of regulation. So the second piece is socio-technical and participatory probably implementation structures. And that means taking a technology that may or may not have quote unquote democratic design at its core, um, say GitHub or Google Docs, for example, like these to me are value neutral or potentially in some cases, not even value neutral technologies and saying, can we implement these in a way that furthers democratic participation that gives people more access to um, information that they might need to make decisions and all of those kinds of things. Um, so if they can become used to disseminate like policy information, if they can become, you know, GitHub, for example, as a tool for civic hacking, as a way to make the budget more transparent or run participatory budgeting structures, then those become democratic technology, even though they may or may not have only been conceptualized in that way. And they certainly are not only used in that way. Um, and then I think the next piece is a broader collective ecosystem. So just returning to the example of Taiwan for a second, because I realized I didn't quite set this up. So Taiwan basically had a social movement in, the, in 2010 called the Sunflower Movement. Um, and this was kind of analogous to Occupy Wall Street in some ways and directly occupied the parliament, um, uh, sorry, the legislative building of Taiwan, basically, and set up all of these processes for collaborative consensus building and disseminating information and deliberation that made such a difference and electrified the public to such an extent that folks from that movement started getting incorporated into the government directly to bring those platforms into the halls of legislation. And so the, the major example of this is Audrey Tong, who's Taiwan's first digital minister, was one of the leaders from the movement and also from the associated civic hacking collective called GovZero. And I think this really exemplifies, you know, what does it look like to take something that was built in a social movement context that has that idea of distributing power, flattening hierarchies, distributing voice, um, but also has the technological backdrop to say, we do that in a way that it's a means to an end. It's not just inviting comments. It's not just civic tech for transparency without accountability. It's really inviting comments to say, what's the next steps we should take here? And the next steps ended up being the, the ecosystem agreed, like we want to become more institutionalized. We want to be a part of government processes, right? And taking that forward and then building these technologies that are designed and implemented to further democratic ends. I think that's not just something that we can see in democracy and government, that's something we can see in democratic decision-making more broadly, which is the kind of thing that I think we need to build into the governance of tech systems. And I say governance and not government, because I think there can be ways that civil society, for example, is more involved in the governance of technological systems without the government being involved in the least. And that just looks like very robust accountability structures. Um, you know, the good version, perhaps, of Facebook's oversight board, right? And these kinds of ways of, of allowing people to have a stake in the technologies that they end up using in their lives anyway. So I'm curious how we can bring uh, social movements and how they're built into this work of democratizing AI. And I'm curious if like what barriers we might see out in the field when we attempt to do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's an incredible amount of work happening in this space and also as we've seen significant barriers, I would say one of the major, you know, a few of the major things about social movements that I'd like to see more of in the space are one, really mapping who has voice and decision power and, and where power sits in, in systems and where we'd like it to sit and where the gaps are. Um, another piece is social movements are by their nature sustained, right? That's really what sets them apart from other kinds of sort of shorter term political actions or goals. And they're really collective challenges by people with 
common purpose and solidarity, and they often extend for a really long time and have the ability to grow and create an ecosystem around them. And this is absolutely what I see already happening to an extent in the AI space, the communities you've been able to create with radical AI, like there is a lot of that happening. And, and I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on all of it, but I think what we can really bring in is concrete structures of collective decision-making across sort of the pipeline of AI, whether that's data commons and data trust and data unions, whether that's you know bringing stakeholders in on implementation. I did some work on COVID policy, for example, which is we, we might think of as pretty uh, orthogonal to some of these questions, but a lot of it ended up centering on how do we bring in community organizations, civil society organizations, and mutual aid groups that are being um, you know, spun up for COVID into the top-down um, decisions that are happening around contact tracing, that are happening around resource allocation. And I think there's really, those bridges are something that technology can build, but isn't currently being directed towards. Um, and so there are a lot of kind of gaps that tech can either widen, as we're currently seeing. I think AI as a space, and I, you know, might even take issue a little bit with what quote unquote, the space of AI is, which I think we've done a lot of kind of interrogating on this podcast, but let's just say AI as a space does have inherently power concentrating, kind of centralizing um, effects, right? Uh, this can come from everything from, you know, requires a lot of compute, basically requires huge resources to succeed, that's inherently centralizing all the way to a tiny number of people are able to make decisions that run these autonomous kind of decision-making systems that huge numbers of people have to live with but have no transparency into. And I think the social movement logic here is the opposite of that transparency, meaningful voice, participation beyond access to tech and into uh, directing the technology. Um, and to me, that really comes back to, uh, you know, how do we find, there's this quote by Ruth Wilson Gilmore that I love, like find the future that already exists in fragments and pieces, experiments and possibilities and kind of grow that future. And I think that's what we have to do here where incredible work is happening. There are so many kind of pieces of this collective change happening, um, incredible social movements as we've seen around the world and also technology that's pulling us in this power concentrating direction rather than building the alternative futures we see are possible with the tech we have, with the institutions we have, with um, all the community work that's happening uh, and really creating that future is, is the work, I think. Whenever we talk about, uh, and by we, I mean me <laughs> and like colleagues, whenever I talk about um, like imagining the future in a democratized technological space or like a decentralized space, I feel like the first topic that always comes up is blockchain. And this mm. is like such a big buzzword. And especially since we've never talked about it on this show, I don't want to like go too deep into blockchain at this point. But could you offer just maybe like a very, very brief uh, description of what blockchain is in case anybody who's listening is still unsure about what that word actually means and how the blockchain is a decentralized uh, technological entity and artifact and if it if it uses this decentralization in good or bad ways as of now? Yeah, absolutely. I think at, at its core, blockchains are, the blockchain is a system of recording information, right? That makes it uh, transparent, difficult, to, impossible slash difficult to tamper with um, and is, is basically a tamper-proof ledger way of storing data. And I think the, the reason it's been really exciting um, to some folks in this wanting to decentralize way is that it often eliminates the need for any kind of quote unquote middleman organization to do that verification process that we see we need for financial transactions, we need for um, governance even, right? There's a huge amount of verification that happens in a lot of our day-to-day -day that hypothetically blockchain structures could obviate the need for and, and have that be much more peer-to-peer -peer where you can verify on the blockchain itself rather than needing all these external entities. So at its core, I think that's the promise. However, I also think that in practice, first of all, cryptocurrency, one of the initial uh, implementations or use cases of blockchain has been very centralized 
in a lot of ways. I mean, from the monetary perspective, with if you look at like holdings of Bitcoin, it's even more kind of centralized than the broader economy to uh, the kinds of structures that are used as consensus algorithms, which not to get too technical, but you know, they're called proof of work and proof of stake. And the most important thing is they require either huge mining kind of rigs, which are very expensive and also the environmental concerns or stake, which is a lot better on the environmental side, but still requires staking some currency. So they're, they're very kind of economic needs to have be a part of this ecosystem. So we're seeing that the while the infrastructure allows for some level of decentralization, it's not necessarily that all the implementations themselves are decentralized. And I think that's where we really come to do we decentralize just the technical architecture? And then if we keep our centralizing social systems in place, then you can use what I see as a, you know, many ways a fairly value neutral technical architecture in service of a range of ends. Now, you know, the fact that there's this decentralization potential built in means that it does have the affordances to create great governance systems. And I think a lot of folks in the Ethereum space, especially are really working on this. Um, and I did some work on proof of personhood algorithms. So trying to, you know, sketch out an alternative to proof of work and proof of stake, which is just, hey, can I verify that I'm a person and then I can participate in governance in sort of a broader way than we already have voting and things like that. And I, I not to, like, I think there's a lot of exciting work happening here, but it's really one of those situations where we can't have a decentralized architecture and then keep the centralized kind of system surrounding it and expect that the outcomes uh, will really be decentralized. And I think there's also something to be said about some centralizing structures that can have virtues and combining a decentralized protocol, for example, with accountable centralization kind of coming to how do stakeholders collectively govern a centralized good, right? And I think there's a reason that a lot of um, a lot of progress has been made by organizations that do have some sort of centralized decision-making structure and are yet accountable at the very least to their members. We can even think of corporations at their best as something like this, where if you can combine decentralization of power with accountable centralization and um, use some technological implementations of decentralization, uh, for one end, and then the governance mechanisms for accountable centralization on the other, then I think you can really start sketching out what is a different type of, of world look like. We've alluded to this throughout uh, this conversation, um, but I'm wondering if we can take a step back and look at centralization, because that seems to be like the, the problem statement of moving towards decentralization. Um, when we think of centralization, what should come to listeners' minds? Are there like specific examples of ways that maybe centralization works well, um, and then also reasons why we should be moving towards a decentralized uh, space? I think centralization, like decentralization, like democratization, like these big words, can have that same floating signifier problem where you can put a huge range of concepts under the word. So I'll just say, I think some positive examples of centralization look like, for example, a local government, right? They're able to, to some extent, centralize power by collecting taxes and deciding what those taxes are used for. Um, but there's a huge amount of, in the ideal state, which is what we're talking about, accountability in terms of elections, in terms of, um, you know, in some cases, direct democratic participation, which I think potentially technology could enable a lot more of um, representative democracy to say, yes, resources are centralized to an extent so that we can create programs that work at scale, that work across, you know, neighborhoods, which is something we need to do. But there's a lot of accountability in a decentralized way to make that centralization process work across different communities. So I think that's a positive kind of mechanism of centralization. However, there are also significant negative mechanisms of this, which are we see uh, incredible concentrations of wealth, power, uh, capital right now in, in the economy and in the political space as a direct outgrowth of that concentration in the economy and particularly in the tech sector between kind of monopolies, the enclosure of what I would call the commons, um, the digital commons rather than the physical commons, which is what happened you know, a few hundred years ago. Uh, there's 
this kind of centralization has zero accountability, has very little transparency. And so I think um, not even getting into the nuances that I know have been covered on the show in terms of who gets the power when it's centralized, right? The, the racial issues here, gender issues, Western imperialist hegemony, all of those major problems that lead to uh, deciding when power is centralized, what entities are centralized in, just thinking more in the abstract that this power concentration with no accountability does not lead to positive outcomes for people because people just don't have any decision-making power over what those systems priorities are. So I think it's really, to me, the difference between accountable uh, and pluralistic centralization versus unaccountable, untransparent, and concentrating centralization. You mentioned the commons briefly in your response to that last question. I'm wondering if you could maybe outline for us what you mean when you say the commons and how that applies to technological systems. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, um, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why commons-based thinking is a little bit coming to the forefront in some of these conversations and could really chart a path forward. So. A commons is basically, you know, some set of shared resources, but it's not just the resources. It includes this idea that these resources are maintained or co-produced by a community or a group of stakeholders. And so there's this idea that there's no commons without commoning, right? So commons is, you know, some people think of it as a set of resources, but it's not just that. It's that plus this governance mechanism that is a quote unquote commoning. And it's managed across the rules and values of a community. Um, so the idea of the commons has been around for a long time. Famously, Eleanor Ostrom's kind of concept of governing the commons pulled from the idea of natural resource commons. So how do people you know, in a neighborhood manage the lake that they all live with? And there's some, you, know, you can't necessarily exclude people from going to the lake, but if someone fishes all the fish from the lake, then other people can't. And so a lot of communities have come up with a series of social norms and rules and sanctions to make sure that everyone had access to what they needed from these common common resources. And now when we think about the digital commons, um, I think that there's a little bit of a different um, ecosystem at play because some of these commons are inexhaustible, right? The knowledge commons, for example, me reading a Wikipedia article doesn't in any way take away from your ability to read that same article. And so you even have this idea of collective abundance that all it requires is this intentional community shepherding and stewardship of that collective abundance. And I think Wikipedia is a great example of that. Um, and there are even smaller kind of data commons where neighborhoods come together and pull data uh, to figure out you know, what some of the major problems are or where um, taxes need to be diverted and things like that. There's scientific commons where different researchers pool scientific data so that they all have more to work with in terms of reaching you know, more robust conclusions and, and things like that, where it's a different concept of the commons, but this same idea of community stewardship, taking something that is already shared resources and really intentionally making it useful for, for large groups. And even coming back a little bit to the blockchain conversation and to the AI conversation, I think this is where these emerging technologies can have incredible impact in creating this abundance and in creating structures to steward this abundance. Um, and this is already happening a little bit in trying to open up new internet protocols with identity, with payments, with data sharing and things that have been enclosed are put behind walls gardens basically by a lot of private entities, but would lead to so much more innovation, productivity and, and solidarity and well-being if they were out um, and able to be changed and accessed and built upon by, by many. And going back to the Taiwanese ecosystem, I think it's this idea of open protocols, of open data, um, of data commons that allows for a huge amount of uh, innovation on top of foundations that already exist. And so if we bring a lot more resources into the digital commons um, for that shared ownership, instead of having it be commod like commonified rather than commodified, basically. Um, I think that could be a really big piece of how we imagine these features in a, in a practical and usable and buildable way going forward. 
And then we also have this concept of the tragedy of the commons, which basically if folks are, for folks who haven't heard of it, um, if a group of people is, there's no sort of regulation whatsoever. And say you have like a pasture with like your own individual sheep, your own individual self-interest is gonna drive you to have your sheep eat as much of the grass as possible. And then there won't be enough for other people. Do we see the same kind of tragedy? Is this a model that can also work as we strive to understand um, the digital commons right now, or is this just a, a totally different situation? Yeah, well, I think, in fact, uh, there's been, you know, some pushback on the tragedy of the commons by saying it's sort of describing more of an open access system than a commons ecosystem, right, which is the reason this happens is that there weren't governance stewardship mechanisms in place where that community comes together and says, don't, you can't continue doing this. And, um, this is one of the problems we see with something like open data versus a data commons, where it, it, given that there's an abundance principle here, it's not necessarily that the data gets overfished or something like that, but it's much more when you just open things out without intentional stewardship around it, it often has no impact on existing power structures. Often, you know, organizations that already have significant capacity um, are the ones that use that data most often. It's not the small civil society organizations or even the small startups or you know, citizens who are interested in answering questions about their neighborhood that use open data because it's not set up to be used in that way. Um, whereas something that's much more set up as a commons has that bridge built in that you know, it requires a lot more work. It requires investment. Opening things up is actually a lot easier, especially in the digital space where there's an, a, you know, you can download things to infinite time. So you don't lose a lot um, by just opening things up. But what you do lose out on is all of the things that can be built on top of that if those bridges are made with intentional governance. Something that I'm wondering in this conversation is how plausible is all of this? I know that, especially when it comes to buzzwords like blockchain and democratization and decentralization and all those like multisyllabic words that we've been throwing out in this conversation, it seems very futuristic and very utopic. But I'm wondering if this is something that we can actually look forward to in the near future or if there's still a lot of work that needs to be done before we can get there. Yeah, I mean, this is the big question, but I think how I answer it for myself is a lot of this work is already happening. We don't even have to wait for the future. We have to find the smaller you know, places where it's happening and help those places grow. So data commons, like I've been talking about, exist in tons of different ways across the world, um, both in a very online way. And also, you know, as I was doing field work, for example, uh, on some of the projects I was doing earlier on cooperatives, something like a quote unquote data commons has existed in an offline capacity for years and years to make cooperative structures work. And so, you know, that I think is already in place in terms of the, some of the deliberative processes we've been talking about. There are great tools like Polis and Lumio that, you know, are run cooperatively or are run as open source foundations that help organizations do that kind of consensus building work. Um, there's really cool work, I think, in the, even the startup community on this idea of quote unquote exit to community that they're helping more smaller organizations instead of exiting to being acquired or, or exiting to IPO as startups are, are want to do, figuring out how to be exit to community ownership and realizing that that actually helps with growth, that helps with innovation because it's the people who are most invested in whatever that organization is putting out that can do the most in terms of growing it. And in the AI space, um, I think, coming out of the fairness, accountability, transparency community, but also more broadly, finally grappling with this, what I would say is the inherently centralizing notion of what AI looks like has been so much more discussion of open sourcing some of the foundational algorithms in this space, so much more trying to engage in collaborative and community design rather than um, you know, totally top-down design. I don't think that um, this is a, this is a, full victory, I guess. I mean, I think a lot of these are really um, small offshoots of a broader future that's possible, but I, I'm i almost concerned about thinking about this as something we have to wait for or build towards when I think it's much more, we have to grow it and we're already in the process where we can be growing it and we can be finding those, those places already. And that's what I spend most of my time doing. And, and perhaps that's why I'm so optimistic. Um, 
because I see all of these offshoots and have worked across a lot of these organizations to really, you know, see that the future is being built and what it needs is the broader institutional power hierarchy differences that we're working towards to really blossom. Is it possible to incentivize these centralized systems? So, so even like the, you know, government and tech and all like the, the complexes to give or to be back or to centralize themselves. I guess that's a funny way to put it, but to bring themselves back to a community ownership model. Um, because it sounds like to you, we haven't jumped the shark on that. That that's like, that's a necessary next step. And I'm wondering for those kind of technological giants who are like, no, we like our agency. We like our self-regulation. We don't want to get, go back to the community to have them regulate us. Um, how, how can we make that move? Yeah, um, that's a big question also. But I think there is a huge role for regulation and for government involvement to play in you know, mandating things like data, op sorry, interoperability, right? Just the basic rails that we need to say, um, you can move from one platform to another in a way that you can't currently do. Mandating some level of data sharing, mandating um, open access to researchers, um, perhaps a public interest mandate for social media platforms. These are all policy proposals that are actively being considered. They're not necessarily, you know, high in the sky proposals, especially um, with uh, new appointments in the Biden administration. Um, and, you know, do I think we can walk up to existing kind of highly concentrated entities, either in the tech space or um, otherwise, and say, hey, how would you feel about community ownership? Like, no, I unfortunately don't think that that would succeed. But I think between some level of enablement from the public sector, between um, you know, investment and growth in communities, by communities, which we're already seeing happening between seeing the success of these. And that's, you know, something I've tried to point out here, which is just, these are incredibly effective systems. Data commons lead to a lot more innovation and success than silo data does. Uh, effective democracy in Taiwan, for example, leads to way better outcomes on major public health crises like COVID than the US system did. And so, building that argument that, look, these kinds of structures work and so many folks across all of these spaces, whether it's tech companies or government, are there because they believe in building towards, you know, human flourishing access agency and making the argument that these systems work better is useful. There's also the material piece, which is some people just massively benefit from the systems we have and don't want to change them. I think that will always be true. But building the movement, and again, going back to the, the social movement framing, building coalition across a range of allies rather than kind of um, narrowing down to a very small number of people who are exactly aligned is, I think, the way to move forward across all of these different pieces. A lot of times when we talk about some of these like high level concepts, uh, such as, you know, democratizing AI and trying to create these digital commons, it feels like it's a little bit out of reach. It seems like, oh, that, like that needs to be left to like the lobbyists or the policymakers or the people who are in power to actually like make change happen. And I'm wondering if for those people who are listening to this podcast episode and just might not have any influence over policy at all in their day-to-day -day lives, at least not large influence. What is something that we can all do um, just in our daily lives to possibly influence and help um, further this decentralized model of technology? That's a really exciting question. I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, and I think that's you know, very close to my heart because that's really how I entered the space in terms of working across, you know, nonprofits, tech for good projects, and really eventually seeing and mapping out like who are these projects I'm building or who are these systems I'm a part of really helping. Um, and I think first just having that understanding with any of the work that you're doing, whether it's tech policy or really anything, I, I really feel that any work can contribute to this project if it's you know, really aware of how it interacts with distributing voice and agency. And most of the, like a lot of the work that folks do does that. And then there's obviously, I have the incredible privilege of spending my day-to-day -day life on this, but um, 
that is is really inaccessible for many and I, I super acknowledge that and, and I'm really grateful for for being able to do this but I think some of that is you know organizing in your communities figuring out the organizations that are already doing this work um, and supporting them going back to the basics uh, there's always kind of some level of commons work that's happening I think I recently moved to New York and I moved to New York in the middle of the pandemic and I felt really isolated for a little bit right and then found these amazing mutual net uh, mutual aid communities um, that were just operating on on my block and running community fridges and running programs through uh, like through the worst of COVID basically um, tenants unions places that are just agitating for uh, community involvement in public planning and I I really think this is happening in every in every vertical in every neighborhood in different ways um, that's not necessarily tech enabled and and look all the best work in this space is not necessarily tech enabled. Um, so I think there is a huge amount of work to plug into and, and be a part of. And Divya, though, of course, we could talk about this for, for much longer. We are coming to the end of our time together. So for folks who would like to continue this conversation with you or find out more about your uh, research, where can they go? Um, probably the easiest place is at Divya Cesarth on Twitter. Also, feel free to email me um, at dcesarth1 at gmail.com. Um, yeah, I'm really, really excited to plug into this community more. I think it's an incredible example of the work you've done in such a short amount of time to bring people together, to imagine these ecosystems, to think about the specifics, whether it's legal or policy or ethical, um, on how to do it is such a great example of everything we've been talking about. So it's been a real honor to be here. Well, and thank you as well for all your work. And thank you for joining us today. We want to again thank Divya for a wonderful conversation. And I, I think what I'm really reflecting on right now is just the idea of the commons, like what a commons looks like in the technology space, which for me, uh, when I used to study like sociology and this concept of the the tragedy of the commons, um, which, you know, as Divya pointed out, there's also some critiques on, um, but the idea of like a, a natural resource, um, like, like water or or even air or something. Um, and I'm just, I am curious about what are the differences and similarities between something like that, where there's a, by definition, a materiality, um, and then something like technology, which in some ways there is a materiality in the servers or there's a materiality in how we utilize, uh, you know, precious metals uh, to, to build it. But then there's also this immaterial space or this like perceived immaterial space of, uh, you know, we're, we're out in the ether of the internet or we're thinking about uh, these spaces kind of uh, in between that, that cross across borders, um, again, almost by, by definition now. And so I don't know if there's tensions there because obviously um, they're connected and obviously they both have to do with systems of power as Divya was, was talking about, who can make those decisions um, and who can't. Um, who are not necessarily powerless, but there's definitely a power gradient that uh, empowers certain people who are already in power to make those decisions on behalf of millions or billions of people because technology goes 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 that deep right across our world. Um, and then there's people who, who just do not have that voice. And so how do we centralize, pun intended, how do we centralize that, that voice? How do we decentralize our um, technology in these systems of power and in some instances, systems of oppression? Um, Jess, what did you think about this interview? I think I love centralizing decentralization, definitely. That's, that's the biggest pun of the day. Um, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I think that the tragedy of the commons is fascinating to discuss in the context of the internet. And I, I really like your call towards materiality. I think that I, for a second, I'm going to ignore the materiality of the, the digital world just so I can envision what um, resources look like according to users of, let's say, the internet. Because to me, as a user of the internet, it seems like resources are infinite. It seems like I will never run out of data. I will never run out of Wi-Fi. I will never run out of information. It's almost like there's an opposite, like equal and opposite problem. Instead of having finite resources, I have 
almost too many. Like there's too much information to go around. There's too much information to parse through to know what's real. And so I, I think there's this interesting, uh, it's almost like a reverse tragedy of the commons. Like what happens when you have too much of a good thing? Although I, I don't know, maybe misinformation isn't a good thing. So maybe information on its own necessarily isn't just a good thing. But I, I did find Divya's comment fascinating about how there isn't really an ability to lose resources online in the same way that you can lose material resources. So again, let's take like servers and the materiality of technology out of the picture just for a second and talk about like the ephemeral um, ethereal part of technology that that exists in like the the quote cloud and, and just the ability, the access to information that we have. If I was to download something like Divya was saying, it doesn't make somebody else enable to download that same thing. So I'm not taking things from anybody by by taking something from the internet but we do lose things that aren't resources online in these centralized spaces we lose the ability to equally distribute power amongst all the people all the users and so i thought that was that was a really fascinating point that if we if we design technologies with affordances for decentralization, then we have the ability to allow power to be equally distributed. And I think that power is a resource in this scenario where we're trying to equate the commons to some sort of like digital alternative. Um, but it is fascinating to think about what an overabundance of resources looks like online, because I think we're we're met with that challenge every day. Yeah, and this conversation made me think of just um how how we define our uh, like our problem definition when we design technology or how the assumptions that we make about uh, humans <laughs> about human psychology um, directly informs the the technology that then we create downstream so um, one of the reasons why I'm harping so much on this tragedy of the commons idea is that um, if we assume that humans are selfish, if we assume that humans are going to grab as much power as possible at the expense of other people, at the expense of, you know, fellow humans um, or, you know, other creatures as well, then we're going to design our technology differently, right? And I think we're, I think what it's going to do is create this echo chamber of us all trying to grab more and more power, more and more um agency because we're like oh well if we don't if we don't get it then someone else is going to get it if we don't fill this niche in the market then someone else is going to and it, it falls into our like techno solutionism i think to some degree because everyone's just trying to you know move fast and break things um and and i think that that's something that we need to be really aware of like are we just are we just doing something because we're like well we don't trust we don't trust other humans to do the right thing and so we're going to create the thing as people quote unquote people in power um to do the best thing for for everyone um but then not actually ask those people <laughs> what they need like is that is that what we're going to do or is there a way to be a little bit more uh community oriented or, or participatory oriented and and recently um if you've all been listening to some of our recent episodes you know I've been on this whole scale kick of like well can we do can we be ethical at scale? Like, period. When we design technology at scale, can it be ethical? Um, is there a way to actually get people's voices involved? And I think this, for me, is is another. Um, I want to say nail in the coffin for for that for that idea to some degree um, of like, well, there uh, at scale, it's almost impossible to get all of those community voices, all of those stakeholders involved. Um, which is why you have hierarchies and, and governments and stuff like that. So I'm not necessarily saying get rid of the governments, let's not do things um, the way that we're, because we, this is the system that we have, but I am saying that there does need to be a push towards centering that uh, community and multi-stakeholder approach, not just the stakeholders who are putting, you know, a massive, amount, a massive amounts of money or power into the system, but, uh, but, but everyone who's going to be impacted downstream by these systems and, and technologies that we're designing. What is true too, like the nature of governance and the nature of just trying to make things happen in the world, you kind of, you need people to lead. You need to have some way to centralize decision-making that actually makes things happen. And I, I don't think that that needs to be by the people who have the most power, the people who have the most money are the ones who need to be the centralized entity that that make the decisions. But I do think that there needs, it, there needs to be some sort of governance that affords a decision-making process. And if you put a, a room of if you put 20 people into a room and you tell them to make a decision, you can't 
completely decentralize that decision-making process. You can't have everybody put equal input and then a decision is just made. You have to have somebody make the decision to uh, get everybody to either make a vote or somebody to make the decision to make the decision for everyone. There, there will be these natural centralized forces that kind of come out of a decentralized um a, a decentralized s scenario or situation. But that was actually why I found it so fascinating talking about blockchain with Divya. And I'm also just kind of a blockchain geek because I, I, <laughs> I have been trying so hard to understand how blockchain and cryptocurrency works for years now. And I keep feeling like I understand and then I kind of don't understand again. But I really appreciated Divya's quick intro and 101 on, on the subject. And I do think that her point about blockchain was spot on in the fact that blockchain is technically decentralized in its infrastructure so it's built to be decentralized and to allow collective decision-making power by all of the people in an equally distributed way but it doesn't necessarily get deployed in a in a decentralized way there are a lot of centralized entities that regulate it or that govern it in various ways and so i think this is a very promising example personally of a technology that has to make things happen so there has to be some sort of centralized entity that's allowing decision making to to occur but it has that decentralized foundation and infrastructure that affords the ability for people to hold hold those centralized entities accountable so that they aren't just subject to whatever exploitation or decision making that that centralized entity is making for them, which is the case of a lot of tech platforms that we encounter in our day to day lives as it is. And obviously, we could go back and forth about this. These are, are huge topics that we also hope to cover in future episodes. Uh, but for now, for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every other week on Wednesdays. You can join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical.